prepared for the rest of the day. I uh, don't know if you remember that. That was actually, um, it was an ad for, what was it for? For like um, trains or something? Yeah, about not, yeah, not doing silly things and killing yourself and crossing a train line. And it did what, um, it managed to do what is nearly impossible, isn't it? Make death a little bit funny or actually quite funny. Death is not funny, and it's not amusing. And we wouldn't be here asking the question we asked today, the question we surveyed a lot of our friends and family of, what would you ask God if you had one question? We wouldn't be here asking the question, what happens when we die if death wasn't deeply unsettling and troubling and not funny at all? So I wonder how you feel about death. How do you feel about death? And why? Now, for some here, you probably don't even think about death, okay? There's a bunch of people here, you're young, you've got your whole life ahead of you, you're mostly sitting over here and here. Well, guess what? It's coming. All right, it's coming. Because there are those here, only a few decades older than you, who are going to more funerals than weddings. It's just a matter of time when death will also hit you square in the face. For others, though, even though you are among the younger ones, um, you've already lost loved ones. You've lost family, you've lost friends, and you've perhaps even lost people who are just as young, if not younger than you are, cut down in the prime of life, and you're wondering what happens with death. So how do you feel about death? Well, some people would say that we shouldn't feel bad about death at all, because if it's a closed universe where there is no God, no spirit, nothing but matter, plus time, plus chance, and I've spoken about that a number of times over the last few weeks, if we live in a closed universe, then, as I quoted last week from famous atheist Richard Dawkins, some get lucky, some live long, some don't get lucky, some die young, but there's no rhyme, there's no reason, that's just the way it is. And because it's a closed universe and there is nothing beyond death, then... At death, we just cease to exist. All right, our heart stops beating, our brain stops functioning, that's it. There's no suffering, there's no consciousness. After death, there's nothing. We shouldn't feel too bad about death. Or as one writer, her name is Diana Athill, you probably never heard of her, neither have I, but she wrote this book, and she's in her 90s. It's a, a collection of essays. Right at the end of this collection of essays, she has a poem and the poem is titled, Why Want Anything More Marvelous Than Death? The whole book is about how death is nothing to be feared. It's perfectly natural. So why want anything more marvelous than that? All right, if death is just going back into the dirt, then it's a little bit like the Lion King. You know the Lion King, the circle of life? Why mourn about going to be part of the circle of life? So that's one attitude to death, nothing to be feared, nothing to mourn. In fact, something marvelous indeed. And yet, we still find death troubling. So about a month ago, I was in Taiwan. My grandfather passed away. And for the first time, I went to, the, and I don't think it exists quite in the same way in Australia, but there was um, a crematorium, so where they burn and cremate bodies. But this was a multi-faith crematorium. It was huge. And so they had sections for every religion almost represented. So there was an Islamic section, a Buddhist section, 
um, a, a Taoist section, uh, and various Christian sections as well. And it was all together, and you could see everyone doing their thing, and, you know, different traditions. But let me tell you this, as I observed all that was going on in the midst of all the faith traditions, not one single faith tradition faced death with a kind of optimism that Diana Athill wrote about. Every single one treated death as a horrible intrusion that interrupted or destroyed something beautiful. And let me tell you that no matter what faith we were talking about there, all right, Christian included, there were lots of tears. And I don't just mean the quiet, sobbing tears. I meant the loud, howling kind of tears. No one there thought death was marvelous. There was no one holding hands and seeing the circle of life. So how do you feel about death? Chances are, they're not positive feelings of peace and optimism and wonder. Not if you've really faced death. Not if you've ever sat by a hospital bed and watched a loved one slowly fade or painfully fade into death. I have. So what happens when we die is a really important question, and it's a suitable one to tackle as our last question. But what, 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 I mean, you might be thinking, where can we go from here? Right? This question or the answer to what happens when we die, where can we go from here? Because no matter what you and I feel about death, this is one of those things where we don't have any certainty, do we? Like whose word do we take about death? Um, Shakespeare's Hamlet. You guys remember Hamlet? Yeah? He called death the undiscovered country. Why is it the undiscovered country? Because it's one of those places where no traveler has ever returned from it to tell us what it's like. So we've got a bit of a problem, don't we? We've got this question, what happens when we die, but how can we answer it if it's the undiscovered country, if no one's ever returned to tell us for sure? Well, here's where the Bible makes a very unique claim. You see, the Bible claims that someone in history did return from the undiscovered country and did return from it to tell us about it. And that person is Jesus. He died, but then three days later, he rose again. There's good historical evidence to believe that this isn't just a myth. It actually happened. Now, I don't assume that you believe it. It's a big claim, I know. But just for a moment, think, if it were true, right? If it was true that 2,000 years ago, Jesus died and then three days later walked out of the tomb, never to die again, he actually rose. Just for a moment, assume it's true. If it were true, then you see why the Bible can make such a huge claim. Because if he did come back from the dead, then the key to life after death is with him. So I'll ask you to suspend your disbelief for a moment. While we meet Jesus, today we're going to spend most of our time with Jesus faced with death. Now, not his own death, which will come a bit later, but faced with the death of a friend from the account of Jesus from his biographer, John, who was one of his followers. So I'm up to point number two, if you want to follow uh, what I'm going to be saying today. Uh, we meet Jesus in John chapter 11. Again, John was Jesus' follower and biographer. He's an eyewitness. He wrote down things that he observed traveling with Jesus for three plus years. Well, Jesus' good friend, Lazarus, had died and it was after a short bout of sickness. Now, we don't know what he died from, but it was certainly unexpected because Lazarus was not old. He wasn't expected to die. He was probably in the prime of life. 
Now, we also know that Jesus loved Lazarus, and he loved his two sisters, Mary and Martha. If you like, they were like close family friends for Jesus. Now, what I want to look at in this account is that question that I asked you before, how do you feel about death? Well, let's ask the, how did Jesus feel about death? Because here we actually get quite a unique window into Jesus' emotions. When faced with death, how did he feel? Um, Let me just uh, pull up some of the bits we read earlier. I'll read it again. Look on the screen. So Mary, who's the uh, sister of Lazarus, when Mary reached the place where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and said, Lord, if you'd been here, my brother wouldn't have died. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Where have you laid him, he asked. Come and see, Lord, they replied. Jesus wept. Then the Jews said, see how he loved him. All right, this little section, just this little snippet, is, is full of emotions. And there's two emotions that it tells us about Jesus when he faced death. How did he feel about death? Two emotions. The first one, not so surprising. The second one is actually quite surprising. Well, what's the first one? The first one is, some people say this is the shortest verse in the Bible, John eleven thirty-five. 35, Jesus wept, right? Jesus cried. But you see, the whole scene has a lot of tears, a lot of grief, right? Um, this is about four days after the funeral. We know because the body had been in the tomb for four days. So the funeral had come and gone, um, and people were still sticking around. Why were people sticking around there? Well, they were sticking around because Mary and Martha were still upset and they wanted to comfort them. You see that, right? You see that in verse 33. The Jews who had come along with her are there to comfort her. So this is a few days after the funeral when most people have gone, but there's still so much weeping, there's still so many tears. And faced with all that grief, again, shortest verse in the Bible, John eleven thirty-five. 35, we read, Jesus was also grieved. He wept. He cried. Real human tears. Now, last week, I talked about in the suffering question that the Bible claims that in Jesus, God actually became a man and He entered into our suffering world. And He experienced not just suffering, but the depths of emotions in the midst of suffering. For the Christian view of God is is this, that God would come into the world and God would cry at the face of death. That's how much God cares in the face of suffering. So that's the first emotion. But not surprising, Jesus wept. The second is very surprising. It's there in uh, verse number 33 when it says that he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. And the same words are used again later on, not, not on the screen, but in verse 38. Deeply moved. Now, that's describing a very strong emotional distress. All right, now, distress, very strong distress is the kind of word behind it. Sadness and tears, we understand. But we've got to ask the question, why was Jesus so distressed? And why was he distressed? As it, I mean, distress is quite a puzzling emotion because we actually know from reading around it, you might have picked up earlier, that Jesus already knew what the outcome of all of this was going to be. Right? In fact, he had set it up so that it would have the outcome that it would come to. Um, we didn't read the first few verses of the chapter, but um, let me show you how Jesus deliberately set things up so that he would end this with a miracle. So verse number one, this is how it began. Now a man named Lazarus was sick. He was from Bethany, the village of Mary, and her sister Martha. 
This Mary, whose brother Lazarus now lay sick, was the same one who'd poured perfume on the Lord and wiped his feet with her hair. So the sisters sent word to Jesus, Lord, the one you love is sick. When he heard this, Jesus said, this sickness will not end in death. No, it's for God's glory, so that God's Son may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Mary, uh, Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed where he was two more days. And then he said to his disciples, let's go back to Judea. Do you see that? Jesus, given the news, deliberately delayed his trip. Why did he delay? So that he would arrive late, so that Lazarus would already be dead four days in the tomb when he arrived. And we'll read on later on, but if you know the story, Jesus was setting up for a massive miracle where Lazarus would not end up dead by the end of the chapter. So it comes to the question, why was Jesus distressed? Like, it doesn't make sense, right? Why would he be distressed about Lazarus dying if he knew, and in fact had set up, to raise Lazarus from the dead? That doesn't make sense. Well, that word that I said translated, um, the New Testament where we read from was written in Greek, one type of ancient Greek. So it's been translated from Greek into English, and the translations are great. But if you know anything about translation of any language to any language, you'll know that sometimes you can't quite capture all of the word or the meaning in a translation. The word used, that's translated deeply moved, in verse 33 and 38 is a very unique word. It's actually related to the word rebuke or scold or tell someone off. It's, 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 a, it's a sort of a, a very strong word, a very violent word almost. So when we're talking about Jesus being distressed, it's not a soft kind of distress. Like sometimes you're distressed because you can't find your keys, right? It's not that kind of distress. This kind of distress is almost an angry, violent distress that you would feel at the face of horrible injustice. That's the kind of distress we're talking about. So when you read about, when I read about kids the age of my children being sold all around the world today into sexual slavery, sometimes by their own parents. I'm distressed, but it's not the, I can't find my keys distressed. I'm distressed with, I think, the kind of distress that Jesus feels. Injustice. In today's language, you could almost say that Jesus was internally raging. All right, that's how he was feeling. It's a, it's a raging at something. So, so why? Why was Jesus raging? Again, a very unexpected emotion. And who was he raging against? What was he raging about? Well, the most natural explanation, as you read this account, is that Jesus was raging at none other, or nothing other, than death itself. You got that? He was raging, he was violently distressed about what? About death itself. See, even though he was about to do something incredible to reverse Lazarus' death, he did not think that death was something to laugh about, like that Dumb Ways to Die video, or feel okay about, or just accept, or think there's nothing more marvelous than that. Do you see, when Jesus faced death, he raged against it, and rightly so. Because in the world that the Bible describes, where there is a loving creator of the universe who, as I said last week, made all things good and who created us for uninterrupted joy in perfect relationship, then death in that universe is a horrible 
and violent intruder that should be raged against. And it's not just the Bible that talks about death as that horrible intruder. Uh, look what, I don't know if you've heard of Carl Jung. He's a psychoanalyst. He's kind of nearly as famous as Freud. But he said this, and he's not a Christian. Death is indeed a fearful piece of brutality. There is no sense pretending otherwise. He would tell Mar- uh, Diana Athill, who wrote about the marvelous death, he would say, you are completely deluded. Don't pretend death is any good. It's a fearful piece of brutality. It's brutal not only as a physical event, but far more psychically or psychologically. A human being is torn away from us, and what remains is the icy stillness of death. There no longer exists any hope of a relationship, for all the bridges have been smashed at one blow. I think he's captured it, hasn't he? See, what makes death horrible is not just that you stop breathing, your heart stops beating, your brain stops functioning. It's the fact that what is stopped, what is cut off, is everything that makes life good. Like you boil it all the way down. What makes life good? The moments you enjoy the most, is it not relationships? Is it not love? Is it not friendship? Is it not intimacy? Those are the things that make life great. And death cuts up all of it. And remember, Jesus, who in this biography of his life, John, and we'll actually be looking at John, starting from chapter 1 next week, and what we'll meet in John as he begins his biography of Jesus is that Jesus is none other than God in human flesh. God who's come into the world. Well, when God came into the world, guess what God did faced with death? He raged against death because it wasn't meant to be. Now, at this point, I want to say, aren't you glad that the God of the Bible, that Jesus validates our feelings about death? Aren't you glad it that God feels about death the way we do, that it is something unnatural, that it's something not only to grieve over, but actually to rage against. I want to say at this point, this is not every religion, not every worldview will validate your feelings about death like that. As I said, if you're a closed universe person, an atheist, then why rage at all? Because death just is. It's just part of the circle of life, right? No need to rage against it. It just is. In Buddhism, you would also not rage against death because the pathway to enlightenment, to nirvana, is to accept and transcend all feelings of desire. And that includes love and grief and joy and pain. You don't rage against death either because you're supposed to transcend those feelings. In Hinduism, you wouldn't rage either because you would be reincarnated after you die. And eventually, after enough reincarnations, and you kind of get it, you would be absorbed into the great impersonal oneness of the universe. You also would not rage against death if your worldview is Hindu. You see, not every religion and worldview allows us to feel about death the way we naturally feel and the way that Jesus validates But the God of the Bible rages against death because it wasn't meant to be. And so now the scene is set up for what Jesus will do about death. And I'm up to point number three. And we're going to, we didn't read it earlier because it's kind of long, but let's read it now. 
follow as I read on, what happens now that Jesus rages against death? Verse 38, Jesus, once more deeply moved, and that's that distress rage word, came to the tomb. It was a cave with a stone laid across the entrance. Take away the stone, he said. But Lord said, Martha, the sister of the dead man, by this time there's a bad odor, for he's been there four days. Then Jesus said, did I not tell you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. Then Jesus looked up and said, Father, I thank you that you've heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this for the benefit of the people standing here, that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said this, Jesus called in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The dead man came out, his hands and feet wrapped with strips of linen and a cloth around his face. Jesus said to them, take off the grave clothes and let him go. See what's happening here. Jesus just demonstrated that in God's universe, death is not the end. Remember last week I said the storyline of the Bible is that God made it, we broke it, but then God will fix it, yeah? When it came to the suffering question, God made it, we broke it, God will fix it. Well, the day is coming when all that's broken will be fixed. Not just the world we live in, but we ourselves. Now, the Bible calls that resurrection. Resurrection. See, the Bible's picture of life after death isn't just spirits floating around in the sky on clouds with harps in our hands in heaven. That's not the Bible's picture. That's popular culture's picture of heaven and mostly to make fun of. The Bible's picture of life after death is physical. It actually is physical. It's resurrected bodies, physical resurrected bodies inhabiting, living in, dwelling in, enjoying a real physical universe, a renewed physical universe. See, the Bible's picture is the ultimate life after death. It really is life after death. In contrast with, for example, again, I'm going to talk a little bit about the Eastern, so the Hindu, Buddhist, even the New Age views of life after death, where uh, basically you're absorbed into the cosmos, that's the ideal, right? Like a drop of water into the ocean, you basically lose your personality, lose your personhood, you're absorbed into the impersonal force, if you like, in Star Wars terms, and you're absorbed into the cosmos, the universe. That's the view the ideal, the, the ideal life after death for a lot of Eastern views. But you see, I want to suggest to you that isn't life after death, really. Because remember, what makes life worth living? And you don't even have to be a Christian to believe this, right? What makes life most worth living? The essence of life is relationships, right? It's love. And what makes death horrible, as Jung said, is that death cuts off relationships. So have a think about it. If my ultimate hope in this worldview is to just be absorbed into the impersonal oneness of the universe, then it doesn't actually solve the problem of death because guess what? Only persons can love. You got that? Only persons can love. Only individual persons can love, can be in a relationship. So if I lose all personhood to become part of the force or whatever that is, that's not more life, that's actually less life. Do you see what I mean? That's not the Bible's view of resurrection or life after death. 
Resurrection is personal. It's tangible. It's real. It's bodily. In other words, it restores and maximizes all that gets lost in the brokenness of death and in the brokenness of our world. It is genuinely life after death. And you see, what Jesus does in raising Lazarus is a pointer to that. It's a pointer. It's a preview. It's an entree. By the way, you need to know that Lazarus was raised, but still raised in the broken world. The world that still needs renewal. Lazarus was raised, but he was raised in his old body. Lazarus would die again. Okay, So what Jesus does here is just a pointer. It's just a hint, give you a preview to the eternal and greater resurrection to come. And he's pointing us to, most of all, to a promise. You see, this is the key verse of of this whole bit. Verse 25, have a look there. Because this is the key to life when we die. It's what Jesus promises, and he is promising that he is the key. So what he says to Martha, Jesus says to Martha, have a look at the screen, verse 25, I am the resurrection and the life. Right, what he does here with Lazarus is to point to this promise. He wants us to know that he is the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Jesus says he is the key to God fixing all of creation, renewing it all, and his people raised to never die again. The resurrection, Jesus says he is that. He's the key to that. And he makes that promise to you today. You got that? Jesus is making that same promise to you today. And he says, if you believe in him, you can be sure that death is not the end. That separation is not the last word. That suffering and sadness won't last forever. He says, it's guaranteed yours if you believe. Now note this. He says, believe and it's yours. Not It's yours only if you build up enough merit points to earn it, to make it. You might have, um, who watches The Good Place? Netflix, TV. Um, I haven't watched it, but I hear that it's all about the common view that to get to the good place, you've got to earn enough points. There's a point system in your life. Enough points, you get there. Not enough points, you don't, okay? And that's a pretty common view, even amongst churchgoers, that you're going to make it to heaven or the afterlife if you've done enough, if you've merited it. But the problem with that view is, of course, it doesn't leave you with any confidence, does it? Like, honestly, how can anyone know that they've done enough? Like, how can you genuinely know at the end of your life that you've done enough? Especially if you know that God sees and knows not just everything you do, and everything you speak, but he also sees and knows your motives, your hidden desires. Sometimes we do say good things, but we do it with wrong motives. Well, God sees everything. And if God sees everything and takes note of everything, then how in the world can I or you be sure that you're not going to have more demerits than merits at the end of your life? Do you see? If we've got to go on the point system, we're all stuffed. 
As I said last week, when God fixes the world, He's going to fix it thoroughly. He's going to fix it completely. He's going to deal with not just the fruit, but the root. He's going to deal with not just the symptoms, but the sickness. Which actually means any sin, any offense, any breaking of His laws, any guilt, any secret shame, everything will be revealed. Everything will be judged. And so all of that, and anyone with that, still undealt with, still unforgiven, when you face God, will be judged and will not be a part of God's new world. And, and you see, if, if the good place is right and we're all on a point system, well, none of us are safe. Or at least none of us could be sure. But that's not what Jesus says, right? He's not saying, if you've earned enough points, right, you can be in the good place. Jesus says, whoever believes in me will live, even though they die. Whoever believes in me, that's all. So what does it mean to believe in Jesus? Because that's pretty important, isn't it? Well, in John's biography of Jesus, again, we're going to start looking at that starting from next week. Believing is a huge theme. But you need to know that believing is much more than just believing facts. Believing that things are true. Believing things just intellectually. Believing in John is a life commitment sort of thing. So about 150 years ago, there was a really famous uh, tightrope walker. His name was Charles Blondin. And in uh, 1859, he successfully uh, put a tightrope across one section of Niagara Falls. And he walked across it. No net underneath, okay? If he fell, he was probably going to be seriously injured, possibly die. And he didn't just do it once. He did it blindfolded. He did it with a wheelbarrow. And then he also said, and he also did it with someone on his back, piggybacking. Now, at the point where he was about to take someone on his back, piggybacking, he said to the crowd, and they were all at this point like completely mesmerized, like, who does this, right? And he says, Do you believe, to the crowd, do you believe that I can now walk across this tightrope with a person on my back? And everyone said, Yes, yes, I believe. And then he points to the crowd and he goes, who will be that person? And no one puts up their hand. So he ends up taking his manager. Because if the manager doesn't believe, then, you know, his whole act is gone. And he successfully does it. He takes his manager on his back and he piggybacks. There's actually a photo, I didn't get that photo, um, across the tightrope. It's quite amazing. But that, that's what we're talking about when we're talking about believe. I believe is not just... The crowd believed, but they only believed in their heads. They didn't really believe. Only the manager, maybe kicking and screaming, really believed. All right? And that's what we're talking about. If you believe in Jesus, then you can be sure of life after death. But that's a big kind of belief. Right? I mean, how can you believe in Jesus like that? Because like his manager, Blondin's manager, you're, you're actually now saying, Jesus, you want me to put my life in your hands. You want me to dedicate my life to trusting you and your promises. So how can you believe in Jesus? Not just his words about life after death, but also that when you face God in judgment, that with all your sins and your guilt and your shame and your secrets, that God will still say, hey, it's okay you're okay with me. How can you believe that that's going to be true? Well, the reason we can believe like this 
is because of Jesus and his own death and his own resurrection. You see, shortly after Jesus raised Lazarus, he goes to his own death. But like the whole Lazarus incident, this was also planned by Jesus. Jesus planned it down to the very kind of horrible death he would suffer. He would be condemned like a criminal. He would be nailed to a Roman instrument of torture, a cross. He would be abandoned and left to slowly bleed out and suffocate and die. Now, why would Jesus plan that? Why would the one who could heal the sick and raise the dead willingly suffer in that way? Powerless, weak, and tortured. Well, it's because the Bible says on the cross, he was the sin bearer. That he would take the punishment and shame that we deserve for our sin. That he would take away our debt and pay it in our place. You see, that's why believing in him is enough. That's why you don't have to earn your way to heaven like in the good place. That's why there's no merit system needed to pay for your sins. Because Jesus paid it already if you belong to him. He bought your entry with blood. He earned forgiveness and he's ready to give it to you free as a gift. Now this is such an important point because you might have come along to these questions for God series and you might still be under the impression that Christianity, like every other religion, is sort of a merit system. It's just a different kind of merit system to a different kind of God. And maybe you've been coming to church all along, maybe most of your life, some of you who may be in youth group, and you still think that God will only accept you if you're good enough, if you're religious enough. Well, I hope you see today, if you haven't already, it's not about that at all. It's not about merit. But how God has done everything already and He gives it to you as a free gift. And that's why you just need to believe. And that's why believing is enough. But more than that, as I said, it's not just Jesus died, He also rose again. And that's also why you can believe Him. Now, like Lazarus, He rose again, but also unlike Lazarus, He rose again. Like Lazarus, His resurrection three days later is also a pointer. He's also pointing to the greater resurrection of all things, of all of his people one day. But unlike Lazarus, remember I said Lazarus was raised, but he was raised in his old body, and Lazarus was raised to die again, and Lazarus did die again. But Jesus was raised with the new creation body, the same body that he promises all of his people will get one day. He gets it in advance to prove that this will happen. He is what the Bible calls the first fruits, right? Which is the first part of the harvest that guarantees the rest of the harvest. Now, in medieval times, um, there was this thing called trial by combat. I don't know if you've heard trial by combat. Sometimes to settle disputes, right? Instead of there being like judge and jury and all the kind of stuff that we take for granted as justice, um, you could actually just settle it by fighting. And whoever won would win the court case or the dispute. Now, that was a good thing if you happened to be a knight or someone with some training, but if you were a poor peasant or a widow and you were in a dispute with someone who was stronger and richer, well, you couldn't fight, right? Or you, you know? And so what you would do is you would, in a trial by combat or settling a dispute by combat, you would need a champion. You would need someone to go instead of you to fight for you. And that, often, and that sometimes happened. Someone was willing to risk their life for you to fight in your place and if they won, you would win. Right? Now, that's a really unjust way of settling disputes. 
But it's a nice illustration for what happens with Jesus in relation to us. You see, faced with death, every single human being is just too weak. None of us will survive death on our own, will we? None of us can defeat death. Not in this trial, not in this combat. Well, Jesus, the Bible says, is your champion. He fights your battle and my battle with death. And when he fights it, he stares it down and he slaughters it and defeats it with his resurrection. And because he won, we can win. I showed you a passage last week. It's still a great one, isn't it? Hebrews 2 says this. Look on the screen. Since the children have flesh and blood, Jesus too shared in their humanity, so that by his death he might destroy him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. See what I said at the beginning uh, Shakespeare called death the undiscovered country. Well, it's not, is it? Because Jesus went through death. He let death swallow him. But then he punched a hole through the back of it and came out the other side. Not just to tell us how death is not the end, but to show us and to lead us there. That's the Christian view, the Bible's view of what happens when we die. The poet George Herbert, 17th century poet, said, Death used to be an executioner. Right? Death used to be an executioner. But the good news of Jesus has made death just a gardener. It's a great one, isn't it? Death used to be an executioner, but the gospel has made him a gardener. So the question for you today is, will you believe? Because that's what Jesus says. That promise is yours. That though you die, you will live if you believe. So will you? Now, for many, many people here, maybe even for the majority of you here who have come and you're not yet a follower of Jesus, you're not going to be able to believe today. You will need more information, and that's great. You will need more of your questions answered, and that's great. Because, as I said, I needed you to suspend your disbelief. Like Jesus' resurrection is a big claim. It's a big if. If this is true, then what he says is true. But you're not convinced about the big if. And that's great that you're still not convinced. It's good to keep a skeptical, healthy mind. And let me just say that a good place to explore it is fresh. Because one of the things we're going to be looking at is, well, how can we trust that when the Bible says that Jesus rose from the dead, the Bible is to be trusted? It's true. How do we know the Bible is historically accurate? How do we know it's not just a myth? Right? We do that in week two of fresh. And then a couple of weeks later, we're going to look at evidence that Jesus really did rise from the dead to tackle that big if question. So, you know, do yourself a favor. You've already come to this, or you've come the last few weeks. Come to our next series. It's a totally different format. It's on a Tuesday, and I come to Fresh. It'll really help you. Some of you, though, today, you may be ready. It may be that you've been to church for a while. You've just never really understood what it means to believe rather than try to earn your way into heaven. Or maybe that after three, four weeks, or maybe after even this week, you're like, no, 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 I don't need more evidence. I, I believe, and I want to I believe. Well, if that's you, then I'm going to ask you and give you the opportunity today to tell Jesus that, right? To tell Jesus that you do believe, and so today you can become a follower of Jesus. On the screen is a little prayer. It's not anything magical or special. It's just the kind of things you'll need to say to Jesus if today you want to become a follower, someone who believes and be assured that life 
after death is real and guaranteed. So um, what I'm going to do in a moment is I'm going to leave that on the screen so that as I pray it, if this is something that you feel like you can pray genuinely to God today because you're ready, then maybe in your head, quietly to God, you can pray it along with me. I'll leave a pause between each line so you can do that. Now, again, that's probably not going to be the majority of you. But it really helped if we can all kind of bow our heads and as I pray it, make it easy for those who do want to pray it so that if you do want to today believe, put your life in Jesus' hands, here's your opportunity to. So why don't we all bow? I'll leave that prayer up on the screen. And just to note, it's a little bit different to the prayer on the, in the bulletins. Um, I'll use the one on the screen. Okay, pray with me inside your head quietly if this is what you want to be doing today. Dear Jesus, I believe that you are the resurrection and the life. Thank you that you died for me and rose again. Please forgive me for how I've wronged you and others. Help me to follow you from this day forward. Thank you that I can be confident of eternal life with you. Amen. All right, we're going to uh, sing in a moment. But let me just tell you, if you prayed that, and for you it was a significant prayer, a giving of your life to Jesus by believing in Him, great news, because you might have walked in here not at all being sure of what happens after you die, but today you can be sure, leaving here, that death will never be the end. In fact, the Bible says eternal life has already started now, right now in you. And I'm going to tell you how we can get some help to you as a church, that's what we want to do. Also, in a moment, I'll get up and tell you how, if you are interested in coming to Fresh or finding out more, the way that we can get help to you as well. But let's, um, let's stand, uh, let's sing, and then I'll come back up and explain how we can follow it up.